everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Earthworm Jim, a side-scrolling, two-dimensional, sort-of-run-and-gun platformer developed by Shiny Entertainment and published by Playmates Interactive Entertainment in 1994 for the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo with a variety of ports to both other consoles and computer platforms following. We will get into that in just a couple minutes, but first, as is customary, just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 34. I am excited. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing. Give feedback, advice, comments, suggestions for future episodes. I would love to hear from you. And there are a couple of ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. And I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. So feel free to shoot me a note if you feel so inclined. I'd love to have the discussion. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I do just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, how was the game made, why was the game made, and then we go into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or we give game star values or anything like that, but we do talk about every single game from a few different perspectives. We always look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, 40, however many years ago? And we do all of that in order to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should go out and play it today. It is that good. It has stood the test of time, and it deserves your playtime. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good experiences. They're not quite Pantheon level, but they are still great experiences. I still highly recommend you play them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game or you love the genre in which the game exists. Definitely give it a shot. I think it will be worth your time. Once again, highly recommended. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach the Mediocre Mentions. These are the games where we start getting into the realm of I can't really recommend them to the general population. You may still have a good time if you like the genre in which they exist, but for the most part and for most people, I can't really recommend you play these games. They've either aged a little bit or might have had a couple of issues to begin with, so not really one of my recommended games. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we get to the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody play these titles. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Earthworm Jim. Jim is a side-scrolling two-dimensional run-and-gun platformer developed by Shiny Entertainment and published by Playmates Interactive Entertainment in 1994 for the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo. Now before we can talk about Earthworm Jim, we have to talk about toys and more specifically the toy market of the 80s and 90s. Now as a child around this time, so I was a child, I was born in 1981. So I was peak child in the 80s and at least earlier 90s. I've got to say, the toys were awesome. 
I remember strolling the aisles of Toys R Us, KB Toy Stores, and a variety of department stores always being in awe of the sheer magnitude of different cool-looking toys that I could potentially own and have adventures with. There were action figures, there were play sets, there were transforming vehicles. As someone who has always had a pretty vivid imagination, the act of playing with toys was amazing and pretty much a daily experience, at least until I discovered the wonderful world of video and computer games. Even better, though, most of these toys had television shows attached to them. I mean, come on. Not only could I play with these toys myself, but I could watch the same characters I owned save the day on my television screen. How cool was that? Every morning, I'd watch G.I. Joe and Thundercats. Every afternoon, I'd watch Transformers and He-Man. And the more I watched, the more I wanted the toys. And the more I played with the toys, the more I wanted to watch the shows. It was like I had found childhood nirvana. Now, as a naive child, I didn't realize that I had just become the latest mark in a global money-making scheme that was driven by capitalism, not a simple sense of wonder and adventure. I just knew I wanted to own every Voltron piece so that he could do battle alongside Optimus Prime and General Hawk to defeat Skeletor's Megatrons and Cobra Commander's evil armies in the most epic crossover event in the history of the universe. Uh, putting aside that small slice of childhood bliss, the fact is that the toy market and licensed tie-ins of the 80s and 90s was serious business. You couldn't turn on a television or walk down an aisle in a store without seeing some sort of toy-based tie-in to popular cartoons or comic books of the time. In 1990, just as a representative example, the toy industry was making around $13.4 billion annually. There was a ton of money to be made, and countless companies were trying to find the next big thing to drive even greater sales. Now, the observant amongst you might have noticed that there was one particularly popular toy brand of the time that I left out of the seemingly random hodgepodge of toy name drops I listed earlier, a toy brand that was pretty much the most popular property of the late 80s. I'm talking, of course, about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. These Heroes in a Half Shell originated as a comic book series originally released in 1984 and became a surprise mega-hit, spawning an entire franchise of cartoon series, video games, toys, costumes, movies, and various other media and merchandise that remains popular even today. The action figures and other toys based on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles warrants particular mention, as that particular toy line became a marketing and commercial juggernaut, and over the course of the four years following release, it made around $1.1 billion and accounted for nearly 60% of all action figure sales across the entire toy industry. The creator of those action figures, a company named Playmates Toys, undoubtedly had hit a home run in the toy market. The only issue was that all of the toys they were selling as part of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles product line were tied into the license for the property, which meant that Playmates didn't have a 100% share of the profits related to those sales. I'm sure they did pretty well for themselves, but the fact remains, their efforts were still beholden to the license holder, who at that time was the original comic book publishing company Mirage Studios. As the early 90s rolled on, the sales of their most famous toy line eventually started to wane, and as a result, Playmates started looking at what their next potential bestseller could be. This time, though, they wanted to create their very own franchise from a brand new intellectual property. And even further, they wanted to start that new franchise as a video game, as they had noticed how successful Sonic the Hedgehog had been for Sega. The thought was, if Playmates could come up with a hit video game concept, they could then expand that success into cartoons, toy lines, movies, and other related merchandise tie-ins. Playmates, however, was a toy company, not a video game developer. They needed to find someone who could join their team and take the company and their potentially new franchise into the video game market. And as chance would have it, around this time, someone with a fairly strong pedigree in the video game industry was in the process of striking out on his own and was in search of a new opportunity. That man was David Perry. We've talked about David Perry a couple times previously, but just to recap for those who may need a refresher. 
David Perry was a video game programmer from Northern Ireland who, from a young age, was always interested in creating computer and video games. He had gotten his start creating games for UK-based computer platforms such as the Sinclair ZX81 and ZX Spectrum. Eventually, he took a job with a company named Probe Software, and while there, he worked on the development of the Sega Genesis version of The Terminator, which would ultimately be published by Virgin Games. Virgin was so impressed with Perry's work that later in 1991, he ended up moving to the United States and joining Virgin as a staff programmer. At Virgin, Perry worked on a number of high-profile video games, most prominently the McDonald's-licensed Global Gladiators, the 7-Up-licensed Cool Spot, and the Disney-licensed Aladdin. As you might imagine, Virgin Games at the time had a large portfolio of licensed properties, and David Perry was one of their star developers. He had developed an engine that enabled fast-paced action, smooth and fluid animations, and a level of quality that most licensed games just couldn't match. His efforts culminated in the release of Disney's Aladdin, which is widely considered to be one of the best Sega Genesis titles ever created, and represents the pinnacle of 16-bit animation, as actual Disney animators worked on the art and animations for the game, with Perry's engine providing the framework for delivering an experience that approximated playing an interactive cartoon rather than simply a sprite-based video game. Now, Perry's string of successes and resulting profits enabled him to have enough financial security to strike out on his own, and in 1993, he decided to leave Virgin Games to pursue other opportunities. When Perry left Virgin, he was courted by various companies to join their ranks, including Sega and, interestingly, Playmates Toys, who, like we talked about, was in the process of trying to break into the video game industry. Perry ended up rejecting both job offers, but he was intrigued by what Playmates Toys was attempting to do with the start of a new franchise. Rather than join Playmates as a staff member, he proposed a deal in which Playmates would provide funding for Perry to stand up an independent game development studio, and in exchange, Playmates would have the exclusive publishing rights to the first three games that the new studio would create. Playmates eventually agreed, providing several million dollars in funding, which led to the creation of David Perry's new studio, Shiny Entertainment, in October of 1993. With the new company formed, several members of Virgin Games left their prior positions to join Perry in this new venture, bringing the total studio size up to around nine employees. And with a staff in place, the first order of business was figuring out what the team's first game was going to be. And right off the bat, they really didn't have too many ideas. Playmates, who had set up a separate entity named Playmates Interactive, which was going to act as the video game publishing arm of their company, attempted to put Shiny in touch with some potential licensable properties, such as the 1980s hit television show Knight Rider. But ultimately, Perry and the team decided that they wanted their first game to be an original property. Now, while Shiny continued to brainstorm on what their first game would be, they continued to beef up their staff, eventually interviewing a former DreamWorks animator and video game artist named Doug Tenapel. As part of the hiring process, the team asked Tenapel to demonstrate his art skills, so he took a pad of paper and did a quick sketch of an earthworm. Now, I know the way I would draw an earthworm which is pretty much just a squiggly line on a piece of paper, but apparently Tendapel was a bit more artistically talented than I am, because his sketch not only got him hired, but would also result in the creation of a brand new character that would spawn video games, a toy line, and an animated cartoon. That simple Earthworm sketch would evolve into Earthworm Jim. With Tendapel's hiring, David Perry bought the rights to the Earthworm Jim character, and the team began working to create the game. Perry and Tendapel worked together to figure out what kinds of skills Earthworm Jim, as a character, would have, eventually settling on Jim having both a degree of melee skill using primarily a whip-like attack and shooting prowess, lending itself to a run-and-gun style of gameplay. Jim would otherwise be able to jump, climb, float, and swing across the game's various levels, taking traditional platformer controls and making them work for what was effectively an anthropomorphized world. The rest of the team, along with David Perry, worked on the game's other characters and levels, all of which were designed to be a comical and almost satirical representation of a traditional video game. 
The origins of Earthworm Jim's unique style comes directly from Perry's prior experiences working for Virgin Games. So let's recall that most of Perry's prior successes were all licensed titles, with games focused on properties from The Terminator, McDonald's, 7-Up, and Disney, and probably others, but those were at least the four that come to mind right now. When a development team works on a licensed property, oftentimes they need to follow a set of standards or guidelines for the usage of that property. Now, I know some of you may be saying, okay, but most licensed games are not all that great and are oftentimes mostly cash grabs as opposed to quality standalone titles. And to that, I would say, yes, you'd be right in saying that. But Perry's specific work involved collaborations with companies who surprisingly actually exerted a fair amount of control over their licensed properties. We talked about this during our episode on The Terminator, but Orion Pictures explicitly prevented Perry from doing anything with the title that would deviate too far from the movie. Perry's original plans was for a player-controlled Terminator character, and that was outright rejected, and any attempt to change the overall narrative was met with resistance. Similarly, his work on Aladdin actually involved working directly with Disney animators, and Disney maintained a degree of creative control over the title that was much more hands-on than many license holders exert. Perry had become disenfranchised working on licensed titles, so with Earthworm Jim, he and the team were determined to let their own uninhibited creativity shine through. This involved a unique sense of humor that oftentimes parodied common video game tropes. As an example... In many games, your overall goal is to save a damsel in distress, though most of the time, that damsel exists solely to provide a reason for you to play the game. In other words, the actual identity of the person you're trying to save doesn't really matter in the context of most games. So for Earthworm Jim, the damsel in distress that you eventually save is named simply Princess What's-Her-Name. Similar comedic elements were injected into the game by the development team, including cartoon-like character designs and high-quality, smooth animations, clever level names that were often puns of common phrases, and an over-the-top set of recorded lines for the main character, ultimately voiced by Doug Tendapel himself. Designing the levels and code for the game involved a unique approach to game development. Perry and the team realized that, at a minimum, they were going to release the game on both the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo consoles, so they knew that they wanted to design the title as a multi-platform experience right from the outset. Typically, when a multi-platform game was developed around this time, a common baseline version of a game was created for a specific console, let's say the Genesis, and then the team would later port that baseline to other consoles, like the Super Nintendo. For Earthworm Jim, Shiny developed a proprietary programming language that allowed for simultaneous development for both the Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis, meaning there wasn't really all that much porting necessary, or at least the amount of effort required to port the title would be minimal. The team was developing for both platforms at the same time, without having to exert any additional level of effort. While this kind of development would become more popular as common multi-platform engines became more prevalent in the 2000s, like the Unreal Engine and Unity, back in the early 90s, this was a pretty unique approach that represented a significant innovation over the typical game development process that many studios followed. Now, that's not to say that there wouldn't be any differences between the consoles. As was the case with many multi-platform titles of the time, the graphics between the Genesis and Super Nintendo would differ, with the Super Nintendo having more vibrant, detailed colors and, in some instances, extra effects and more detailed level backgrounds, including the addition of more refined parallax scrolling, which created a greater sense of depth in the environments. That said, one downside to the Super Nintendo's graphics was that the screen resolution was different than the Sega Genesis version of the title, and in order to make the game work on the system, the development team simply stretched the image horizontally, which means the Super Nintendo version of the game is actually a lower resolution than the Sega Genesis, despite having a higher degree of graphical fidelity. From a sound perspective, the Sega Genesis version was generally superior. While the actual music for each version is a purely subjective preference, the Super Nintendo version was actually missing sound effects that were prevalent on the Genesis cartridge, creating an auditory experience that was decidedly worse on the Super Nintendo. The biggest difference between the two versions is the fact that the Super Nintendo is missing one entire level from the game, the penultimate stage entitled Intestinal Distress. 
The reason given by the development team at the time was that data compression for the Genesis was easier to implement than on the Super Nintendo, which meant that more data could be stored on the Genesis cartridge, allowing for the additional level to be included. In reality, this was a shrewd move by Sega in the midst of the console wars, because they asked Shiny to include an additional level for their version of the game in exchange for a reduced cartridge cost to the company. The story goes that the development team designed, coded, and tested the new level literally one day before it was supposed to be sent off for production, resulting in the surprise omission for the Super Nintendo version of the game. Regardless of those differences, Earthworm Jim would eventually release in late 1994 for both the Genesis and Super Nintendo, and would be met with both critical and player acclaim. Many praised the game's graphics and animation, which had a similar hand-drawn look and feel as Perry's prior work on Aladdin, as well as the gameplay and numerous design, which many felt put it above many of the other platforming titles that had been released around that time. Beyond those initial versions, Earthworm Jim would be ported to multiple platforms, including the Game Gear, Game Boy, Microsoft DOS, and Sega CD. Now, the Sega CD version of the title warrants some additional discussion, as this particular version of the game was deemed to be the definitive edition, with additional sections added to levels, improved audio, narration, and animation, different endings depending on what difficulty you beat the game on, an extra weapon power-up, and, most significantly, an entirely new level exclusive to the console. The team also added a password system for the title, removing some of the frustration that would be felt if you lose all your lives and continues, which would otherwise force you to start the entire game over from the beginning. With the success of Earthworm Jim, a number of spin-offs and sequels would be developed. Recall Playmates Toys' original aspiration of developing a brand new franchise that they could make toys, games, and various other products based on. It turns out, their goal would become a reality, as Earthworm Jim would eventually become an action figure toy line, an animated cartoon, and a comic book, in addition to having several games and remasters released over the years. Unfortunately, though, Earthworm Jim would never reach the same heights as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Its toy line would only achieve a moderate level of success, and its show only lasted two seasons, though it did notably have Dan Castellanata, the voice of Homer Simpson, as the voice of Jim. David Perry and the Shiny team would release a direct sequel to the game in 1995, which would be as well-received, if not more so, than the original title. Though after that release, a number of changes would occur that would impact the overall legacy of Earthworm Jim. First, Shiny was purchased by Interplay, and even though the management team and staff were kept on board, Perry instituted a no-sequel policy that prevented future work on the Earthworm Jim series internal to the company. Second, despite no direct layoffs, a number of employees left the company after Interplay's acquisition, including Doug Tenapel, who all went off to form their own studio, The Neverhood. With the original game's developers no longer directly involved, a number of additional Earthworm Jim games would be developed over the years, but most would be considered poor imitations of the original title. Earthworm Jim himself would also appear in a number of different games beyond standalone platform adventures, but his involvement was mostly relegated to a side character rather than a starring attraction. That said, there has been some recent discussion around Earthworm Jim, with a new animated series announced as in development in late 2021, and even a new game created by its original designers on the horizon for the Intellivision Amico system. Now, it's unclear whether either of those will see the light of day, especially the Amico game, since that console is almost certainly vaporware, but you never know. We might be pleasantly surprised. While Earthworm Jam may have never reached the level of fame that Playmates Toys hoped, that doesn't mean that it wasn't a significant release in gaming history. As Shiny Entertainment's first title, it represented the efforts of a number of creative individuals who truly wanted to create a unique, humorous experience that was decidedly different than the majority of platforming titles out there. That development team succeeded in creating a game that, while perhaps not as popular as what they would have liked, still made its way onto a number of top games of all times list, and is certainly an experience that deserves to be remembered.
now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Earthworm Jim today, a good almost 30 years after it was released. So just to recap, Earthworm Jim is a side-scrolling two-dimensional run-and-gun platforming title. And I want to note, this was released on both the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo with some ports to other systems. I played the Sega Genesis version for this podcast episode because it was the original released version and also had more content than the Super Nintendo version because it had that extra level intestinal distress. So the Super Nintendo version, I thought, I don't want to do that one. I want to play what it felt like in its original iteration, which the baseline, even though we talked about the fact that it wasn't a true quote unquote port between systems. Uh, I wanted to play the Sega Genesis version. Now, I could have played the Sega CD version, which had an extra level, but at the same time, it also included a password system, which would have made things dramatically easier than the original experience. So I wanted to feel what it felt like to really play that original Earthworm Jim experience. So that's what I did, and I played it on the Sega Genesis. So let's talk about the game. It is a platforming run-and-gun title. So let's talk about that. Basically, what that means is that when you're going through any single level, there is a combination of normal platforming elements like jumping and climbing up ledges, running, swinging, flying and floating. And then also there is some shooting involved. So you can shoot and you can also whip. So with the shooting, basically the way it works is you can fire in any number of directions. I believe you can fire in all eight directions um, from a diagonal perspective, left, right, up and down, depending on where you are or how you're positioned on the screen and whether you're holding on to something or not. Um, and you do have limited bullets for the gun so it's something where it's not like you have unlimited ammo it's not like contra from a running gun perspective where you have unlimited ammo and you just keep shooting no you do have limited ammunition in this game the game is pretty liberal with providing additional ammunition as you play through the game but you do have to conserve your bullets just a little bit because there are some sections that are going to eat up your bullets and we'll talk about those in a little bit you also have a whip attack, and that whip attack is pretty much your standard melee kind of move. In this game, you basically, or the super suit that you're in, takes your worm-like body and uses it as a whip. So it's kind of comical and it's comically animated, but that's the way that works. It also feels like the whip attack is a pretty strong attack. It's a much stronger attack than a general shot. So if given the option, your whip will do more damage than what shooting an enemy will do. Now, your shots are rapid fire they just don't do a whole heck of a lot of damage now there is an upgrade for the uh, shooting for your gun which is called the mega blaster and that does fire a very damaging attack the only issue with that is that there is very limited ammunition for that particular uh, move or that particular gun in the game so as you navigate the level you do have a life meter which can be replenished with items in the environment and the way it works is your life meter is based on percentages. So if you have 100%, that means obviously that you have full life. As you take damage, you will lose some percentage points, which brings your overall hit points down. Many enemies have some sort of grab move that significantly impacts your hit points. And most attacks are pretty damaging. Like think 20%-ish per attack. So even though you have what appears to be a fairly big life bar, the attacks in the game are pretty strong, so much so that it's basically like having five bars as a uh, as a life meter where each bar represents 20% of your overall hit points. And like I said, some enemies have a grab move that kind of decimates your hit points, so that can be pretty dangerous as you navigate through some of the levels. When you start the game, you begin with three lives, and you can find more in many of the levels. You also only have one continue available at the start, but you can earn more by collecting enough energy orbs in the Andes Asteroids mini-levels. So the game consists of eight main levels, and most of those levels have unique mechanics to keep the experience feeling fresh. So let's talk through each of the levels, because... I do appreciate the sheer variety of content and mechanics that were included in each of the levels. I thought it was pretty ingenious by the teams to design it this way. So the first level is called New Junk City. And this is pretty much 
the most standard platforming level in the entire game. It is effectively your tutorial to get used to the controls and the style. Also, at some point, you launch a cow into the air because why the heck not? Um, The cow does appear briefly, by the way, flying through the background in multiple levels thereafter, and eventually it will make a splash during the game's ending, but no spoilers. But the level itself is pretty traditional platforming, run-and-gun kind of fare. I will say that when I first started playing the game, I was not really good at it at all. I had originally, so before I had even started this podcast, I had gotten, um, I have an Evercade. So I enjoy my Evercade. I have, I have, uh, I think I have every game or every cartridge that has been released for it thus far. But regardless, I got the Earthworm Jim or the Interplay Connection or Collection, which has Earthworm Jim in it. And I went to play the game on my Evercade. And I got to tell you, I bounced off of it really hard. The first level, just the control style, the damage. I think what happened was I, I, jumped off of the chain at the beginning and landed in the little dog's mouth that kind of goes crazy on you. And he destroyed me and he kept destroying me and I just wasn't having it. So I turned it off and I never went back to it until just uh, recently. So even though that first level is effectively a tutorial and trying to teach you the ropes of what is to come, it was still a little challenging. And if you're not ready or you're not prepared for this kind of run and gun platforming experience, it could still be a little tricky. So you do have to persevere a little bit in order to get through that initial hump to really understand what the game is going to feel like. Anyway, after you beat New Junk City, you move on to a level called What the Heck, and it's basically a hell level. It's literally all covered with molten lava and fire and brimstone. It really is hell. There are some new mechanics here. Uh, including elevators that move based on when you walk or run on them, as well as a boss fight where you start without your super suit. So this is the first time that you have a fight or that you're playing the game where you are just Earthworm Jim and not necessarily Jim with the super suit that enables you to have all sorts of powers. Uh, I will also say that this level probably has the most irritating boss in the entire game, at least until you get used to it. So the way this boss works, you start the fight and you are just your worm. You don't have the super suit on and you have to dodge some attacks, some fire in order to allow uh, the fire to knock the boss off her platform. That's easy enough. All you have to do is jump over the fire. It goes past you. And then eventually it will melt down the platform and the boss will move on to the next phase of the fight. Uh, I will say that the, the platform or the, the feedback for the fire hitting the platform and actually making progress, that was not all that great. I didn't even know if it was actually doing anything at first until finally I started to see the platform start to be affected by the fire. Independent of that, that is not the irritating part of this boss fight. The irritating thing is when you get to phase two of the fight and you're on this platform and the screen is totally dark except for the platform and you. And this boss will just randomly appear and start floating towards you quickly and eventually will land on you. And if he lands on you, he does a bunch of damage and um, just basically makes your life miserable. Now, what you have to do is shoot him. And if you actually do shoot him, then a bunch of fire flames or fire jets fly at you that you have to jump over one from each side of the screen. That's totally fine. The issue with the fight is the sheer randomness of where and when he's going to appear because sometimes he appears in such a way that it's very difficult to avoid getting attacked by him. Now, eventually you learn that the best way to do it is effectively be firing in every single direction or as soon as you see him, you hit the fire button in that direction and you should be able to hit him and As with many cats, it's a cat that's the main boss. He has nine lives, so to speak, so you have to hit him nine times before you can move on to the next level. But it is probably the most irritating boss fight in the game, or at least it was for me, because it just was designed with such a random element that it felt like I couldn't actually prepare, so to speak, or I couldn't actually uh, be proactive in defeating him. It just kept attacking, and I just... I was not a fan of those particular uh, mechanics. 
The next level is called Down the Tubes, and this is an underwater level where you spend time alternately in either underwater bases or small but somewhat fragile submarines. Uh, now, I will say that one of the more irritating enemies in the game lives in this level. So last time was one of the more irritating bosses. In this level, we have one of the more irritating regular enemies, which is this big guy who stands around in certain tubes. And if you run into him, he will grab you and punch you back. And in and of itself, that's fine. But the way the game is designed or the way this level is designed is many of these tunnels have multiple sections with these particular bad guys in them. And the punchback that they do is severe. It knocks you back a far way. So let's say that a given tunnel has three different segments. And each of those segments has this big brutish guy that if they grab you, they will punch you and knock you back pretty darn far. Let's say you beat the first two segments. You get past the first two segments because these guys are not beatable to the best of my knowledge. It's not like you can shoot them and defeat them. You have to jump up and grab onto a, a little uh, hanging thing in one of the tunnels and you hold your body up, let them pass, you drop down, then you move on. So it's basically sort of sneaking past them versus trying to actually defeat them. So let's say you got past two of those three segments in the tunnel and you get caught by the third guy. Well, guess what's going to happen? He's going to punch you. You, he's going to do extreme damage. You're going to fly back. You're going to fly into the second segment of the tunnel. The other guy that's in that part of the tunnel will likely grab you immediately, and he will punch you back into the first segment of the tunnel, and he will then grab you. The guy in there will grab you and then punch you back. So what, be, what starts as one hit becomes three absolutely massively damaging attacks. Now, it's not that difficult to avoid the enemies, it's pretty simple, but you can make a mistake. And if you do make a mistake and you get chained into one of those constant punch knockback kinds of attacks, you will be decimated. I also want to talk in this level about the submarine mechanics because this was an ingenious addition to the game. And I've seen a lot of different people complaining about the submarine mechanics and the underwater movement for the submarine. So let's talk about that a little bit. At certain portions of this level, you will climb into a submarine and you can use propulsion jets to move you around under the water. The goal being to move from one airlock to another. You don't necessarily know where that second airlock is going to be, so you have to do a little bit of navigation. And along the way, there are these little air hoses or air connectors where if you get close enough, you can get additional air or additional time for your submarine. The submarine is pretty darn fragile. If you don't take things carefully as you're navigating the level, you will effectively crack up all the windows. And eventually, if you get hit enough, if you hit yourself into a barrier or the, the walls enough, the submarine will explode and you will die. Uh, now, there is one section of the level where you have a pretty tight time limit to get through. It turns out there's a secret area where you can get some additional air later on in that particular segment of the stage, which I'm guessing many people who complained about the overall difficulty here didn't realize there's a secret that's literally hidden. You have to go through a wall and you find another air hose that gives you some additional air. And once you have that, you pretty much have all the time in the world to get to the area or to get past that level as appropriate. So, it is an interesting mechanic. I actually enjoyed the mechanic. It, it works pretty well. There is a degree of inertia that comes about by getting by using the propulsion and moving around under the water, as you might expect from just water physics. I'm not saying that it's a it's a complete physical simulation, but it seemed to work pretty well. I actually didn't mind the submarine parts. I know a lot of people do not like them, but I kind of like them. It was they were cool levels, and I thought it was actually not so bad moving around those levels. Moving on to the next level, if you get past that underwater stuff, you get to snot a problem, which is a totally different type of level where you, along with an enemy, are attached to the ceiling with a bungee cord and you have to force your opponent into a cave wall to break his cord before he breaks yours. All the while, you avoid a vicious creature in the lake at the bottom of the level that can snap your cord with a single Bite. Now, this by far is the worst level in the game. And let me explain why. First of all, 
the game or the level is three separate stages, and that's okay. And they get progressively more difficult, as you might expect, as you move through several consecutive stages. That's totally fine. The reason that this is an issue is just the mechanics of trying to knock the enemy into the wall in order to break his bungee cord. And beyond that, his spin move. So the goal is, or the way the game works, is you're falling, he's falling, you're constantly bumping into each other, trying to knock the other person into the wall. You do have to have them, whether it's you or him, you have to rub against the wall multiple times in order for your bungee cord to break, unless you get too close to the creature in the lake at the bottom, in which case they could just snap your bungee cord in half. Only yours, though. I don't believe he could ever snap the enemy's cord in half, which I guess is fine, whatever. But the thing is that the bad guy that you're fighting in this level has a spin move, and that spin move can be incredibly irritating to deal with. So what'll happen a lot of times is you're just trying to bump into the guy. You're trying to bump him into the wall, and randomly he decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do my spin move. And you move into him because you're trying to bump him into the wall. You get hit with the spin move, and the spin move really depletes or really takes a lot of damage from your bungee cord. And beyond that, it kind of kicks you around a bit, so you may actually go hit into the wall because you just got hit with that spin attack. So it's basically a double whammy of destruction, and it is just the probably the most irritating level, no, definitely the most irritating level in the game because, once again, the same kind of critique I had for the boss of what the heck, it's just completely random when this happens. And it's just one of those things where it can basically just ruin your run. You could be doing great and you get hit by that spin move or you get trapped against the wall as he executes his spin move and you'll just die because you keep bouncing back and forth between him spinning you, spinning at you, which does significant damage and you ramming into the wall, which does significant damage. It's just not fun. It took me a while to get past this one. And there are some ways you can mitigate some of the attacking in that level by, by navigating closer to the wall and then going back out towards the middle to try to try to um, lure him closer to the wall. It's just not that fun. <laughs> this level was not great. I was not a fan of this level at all. It was much too random and the difficulty was just all over the map. Sometimes you would have effectively a flawless victory. Other times you couldn't even get a shot in and you wouldn't even be able to bang him into the wall once. So I didn't really like that level or that set of levels at all. But assuming you do get past that level, you get to the level that's simply called level five, which is basically a factory kind of level. It's pretty standard. I will say that this is probably where the game starts to get more truly difficult. Up to this point, any difficulty that you might have faced is kind of artificial to a degree, like the random nature of the boss from the second level or the uh, just sheer randomness and insanity of the, the guy you're fighting and it's not a problem. It's kind of to a degree unfair a little bit maybe not really unfair but it's just arbitrary difficulty level five is where you get actual challenge which i can appreciate because i actually enjoy real challenge in games and one of the cool things about level five is that it also has a secret level which is called who turned out the lights and when you navigate through this level the way it works is there's literally no lights on the screen whatsoever you have to use different cues in the environment, which is, once again, totally pitch black in order to navigate and get through that particular bonus level. I got to say, unless you can, unless you pick up the extra life, there's really no good reason to go through this level at all. The secret level, that is, because all it does is give you an extra chance to die unless you're going to pick up the extra life and you're good enough to not die in it. Or you just want to see what the level's like, I guess. Um, there's really no reason to do it. It's not like it provides any sort of warping or anything that would really give you a leg up in the game itself. Anyway, still a cool concept for the level, just not something that I would I would really go back and do again now that I did it once. Assuming you're at past level five, you get to the next level, which is for Pete's sake. And once again, here's another different mechanical level, different mechanics in this level. In this one, you have to escort a dog from one end of the level to the other. 
And of course, as you would probably imagine, as you're navigating or as you're uh, escorting this dog, there are different enemies that might pop up. There are different gaps that he may fall down. And the way to get the dog to move forward or to jump up is by whipping him. So you have to whip him in order to jump over gaps and to get from one ledge to another. And you have to also make sure that you're attacking the enemies. Sometimes you may want to actually shoot Pete to stop him from moving forward, because if you do shoot him, he will stop. And then you can maybe deal with whatever obstacle or enemy might be ahead. Because if Pete gets, or if he falls off the screen, or he gets attacked by an enemy, he gets really angry and he turns towards you and he will grab you. He'll take some of your hit points and he will move you back to a certain portion of the level. The level is kind of split up into multiple, like a ton of unmarked checkpoints. And the way it works is if Pete gets angry, if he falls off a level or if he gets attacked by an enemy, he will bring you back to whatever the next unmarked checkpoint uh, was checkpoint was. So, it's one of those situations where you want to be careful. It's it's not a particularly difficult level once you play through it a couple times and you get used to the mechanics and you know when you have to stop him by shooting him because you have to deal with some obstacles up ahead or you just want to whip him to get across the gaps to keep things moving along. One of the interesting things here too is that at the end of the level there are two different paths to complete the level. One is kind of the standard path, which is pretty much straight ahead. And there is an advanced path, which apparently involves all sorts of platforming shenanigans. I did not do the advanced path because I am not a masochist, but it is there for anybody who would want to try that out. If anybody has done that, let me know what you thought of it, because I can tell you, I was just trying to get through the game and beat it normally. And I didn't want to waste any lives on trying to do something that was truly unnecessary. The next level after that one is called Intestinal Distress. This is the level that is missing from the Super Nintendo version of the title. So just for reference, this one is a pretty standard platforming level. The only interesting thing here is that it takes place inside a monster's intestines. Other than that, though, this is pretty much as close to a traditional platforming level as you're going to get, similar in that regard to the original level New Junk City. And then finally, if you get past that, you get to the final level of the game, which is called Buttville. And you might guess where this level takes place. It's effectively another platforming level, but the navigation in the level is pretty tricky. There are a ton of spikes in the level that you have to maneuver around. You have to float and jump around to try to avoid them because you take a lot of damage from the spikes in this level. Uh, you also have to, as you're navigating the level, avoid various enemies. There are some enemies that you have to actually shoot and kill, like these bee-like enemies that come out of hives, which can really swarm you and mess your day up. There's also an enemy that, if you get too close to it, will just basically jump out and chomp you in half, which kills you, as you would expect. So some of those you have to actually shoot. There are some that are not shootable or not attackable, and for those, you have to just time your jumps appropriately so that you jump when he is not snapping. So it's a pretty tricky level to get to the boss. Once you get to the boss, the boss itself is not all that bad, but you do need to make sure you have a good amount of ammunition because at the end, you're going to want to shoot a lot. There's going to be a lot of shooting to try to finish the big bad boss of the game, and you might run out of ammunition. Now, if you do the game will replenish a little bit of that ammunition for you. So it's not like you will ever be fully out, but because of the final boss mechanics, which I'm not going to get into for fear of spoilers, because of those final mechanics, you're going to have to keep up a relatively steady stream of shooting, which if you have limited ammunition could be a little bit tricky. So those are the main levels of the game. In between each level, there's also a mini game called Andy's Asteroids, where you have to avoid obstacles while trying to win a race against your nemesis, Psycrow. Now, along the way here, you can collect energy orbs, and if you collect 50 of them in a given level, you earn a continue, which from my perspective is absolutely necessary. You want as many continues as you can get for this game. There are also boosters and shields that you can pick up uh, while you're doing these Andy's Asteroids levels, which will help you on the course. If you win the race, you move on to the next level. 
if you lose the race, you have to fight Psycho. And both the races and the Psycho fights become more challenging the farther in the game you go. You also don't earn any of your continues if you don't win the race. So even if you collect 50 orbs, if you don't win the race, you don't get the continue, which really kind of hurts a little bit. So you do have to balance your accuracy with speed as you're navigating through the levels. So before we get into talking about the more specific aspects of the game, like the graphics and sound, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because as you all know, I find it very interesting to read about what the development companies or the marketing companies thought would be a good idea as far as how to market their titles. Back when these games usually came out, it was not common to be able to have a full knowledge of what the game was totally about in advance of just looking at the box. Sometimes you would have a magazine to be able to reference, but it's not like we had the internet with YouTube that you could go watch gameplay videos. So we were pretty much forced to either use any magazines that we might have had at our disposal or take a look at the box. If we're trying to make a buying decision real time in a video game or computer game store, a lot of times we would buy something based on how the box looked and what was said on the back of the box. So for Earthworm Jim for the Sega Genesis, the back of the box says, Eat Dirt, the best game ever to hit a screen. This isn't game of the year. This is game of the decade. It's going to take a miracle for another game in the 16-bit category to even compete with EWJ for Game of the Year. Those were a couple of quotes, one by diehard game fan and the other by game players. So I've got to believe that those were tongue-in-cheek quotes because there was literally no attribution. Regardless, there were some pictures of screenshots on the back of the box as well, but that was pretty much it. I'll say that I don't know that this fully would have sold me on the game, just taking a look at it, because it might have seemed a little bit too farcical. It wasn't didn't really give any indication of what the individual game was really going to be about. It was kind of just a comical kind of response or comical kind of uh marketing material so not necessarily bad i don't know if this would have sold me though i think they could, probably could have done that a little bit better um, just given the fact that you may not have seen the game in motion and the game in motion actually looks really great because the animations are awesome anyway putting the box aside let's start talking about the more specific aspects of the game we're going to start by talking about the graphics this game looked Good, super high quality cartoon-like visuals. The animations were superb. Every character in the game felt humorous and just like what you would see in a cartoon world. Seriously, I know a lot of people say a particular game may look like a cartoon. That's what, I mean, you look at any game, it's like, oh, it's like playing a cartoon. Well, you know what? This one really does, and it works. I especially love the little lasso animation that Earthworm Jim does when he wins one of the Andes Asteroids races. The graphics here were simply superb. I'd even go so far as to say that the game may have better graphics and animation than the Genesis version of Aladdin. And that's saying something. This kind of feels like the continued evolution of David Perry and the team's skills, each of their games being an improvement upon their previous one in various ways. Graphically, this one is pretty much at the top of the heap. It looks better than some indie titles today. Not just indie titles focused on retro kind of aesthetics, just better than some indie titles. It is a seriously good-looking game. Moving on to the sound and music, I really enjoyed the music in the game. It's an incredibly eclectic soundtrack, with some tracks being serious, others being like a cartoon rodeo kind of sound, while others take cues from classical pieces and then transition into what could best be described as easy listening elevator music. It doesn't sound like it would work, but it actually does. It adds a degree of cohesion to the overall experience and meshes really well with all of the action on the screen. Similarly, sound effects are great. I love the whip sound, and the short one-liners and voice-recorded lines that are delivered over the course of the title are all over the top and fit in perfectly with the comedic nature of the game. Honestly, not a single complaint here. I loved the auditory experience. 
Moving on to the narrative and story, you play as Earthworm Jim, a fairly typical Earthworm just living life, when one day a supersuit falls from the sky, and upon entering that suit, you gain human-like abilities. You take your newfound skills and traverse a number of levels, all in the hopes of meeting Princess What's-Her-Name, all the while various enemy creatures attempt to defeat you and take the suit for themselves. So as you can see, this is a pretty goofy, if not super goofy plot, but it honestly works well within the context of the game. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Platformers do not need a complex, detailed story to work. But I always appreciate when there's some form of backstory to the proceedings, and this game wins bonus points for the sheer craziness of the concept. Who would have ever thought of making a game about a heroic earthworm? I wouldn't have, but I'm glad somebody did. Moving on to the playability and controls, the game controls pretty typically of most platforming titles. You move around with your D-pad and you can jump from platform to platform or you just use the D-pad to navigate around the game world. You can climb up ledges, you can grab onto the edge of ledges and climb yourself up as you work your way through each level. And when you jump and fall, you can repeatedly tap the jump button to twirl your worm head in a propeller-like motion to slow your descent and sort of float a bit through the levels, which I thought was interesting. And you do have two main ways to attack, like we were talking about a little bit earlier. You have a whip, which uses your whole earthworm body as a weapon, which is kind of awesome, and a machine blaster, which has limited ammunition and can be found throughout the game world. Though if you do run out of ammunition, like we mentioned before, it will regenerate just a little bit. It doesn't regenerate fully, but it does regenerate slowly enough that you would have some ammunition to be able to use to attack some enemies. Now, you can also use your body as a whip to swing across certain gaps and chasms. Think like Indiana Jones, but that is reliant on a hook being present in the game world. So it's not like you could just whip a platform and swing across. There are special objects that have to be in the game world in order for you to be able to use your body as a whip. In various levels, though, the control scheme may change because of the sheer variety of mechanics that's built into the game, such as during the Andes Asteroids race levels. In nearly all instances, though, the game controls very nicely, and overall, the game plays really well. That being said, I do have some critiques. Attacking can just sometimes feel a little bit off. When you use your whip, judging the distance of the attack can be a bit tricky sometimes, causing you to miss your enemy and putting you in a situation where you're in a bit of a stuck animation until that animation finishes, where you can't really move around, you can't really do anything, so it does freeze you in place a little bit. Shooting, similarly, has what can only be described as odd feedback with certain enemies. It's sometimes difficult to understand how much damage you're doing to a given foe, and while the gun feels good fighting certain creatures, for others, like the simple birds in the first level of the game, it just feels kind of underpowered. And I think this is why, when I was playing the game on my Evercade, when I originally got the interplay connection, that I didn't realize how to play the game because I was firing and it didn't really give me the kind of feedback that I was expecting. It doesn't really show that I was doing much, if any, damage to the enemies. So I just was kind of like, well, I guess I'm not damaging them. I must be doing something wrong. And that's why I didn't really appreciate the game at that point. I do want to say, though, this is purely a subjective thing. It's purely about the way the game feels. And that's a subjective kind of experience. Not everybody's going to have the same exact opinion. There isn't actually any difference in the performance of your blaster as you're using it. So if you're shooting an enemy 10 times, you are doing the appropriate amount of damage. It just feels better using it against certain enemies than others. Certain enemies do give you that kind of nice feedback where you really feel like you're shooting them and it feels awesome. Other enemies just do not and it feels like you're not really doing the right thing, even though you really may be. The next thing I like to talk about is using the whip to swing across gaps. This one is going to take a little bit of time to get used to. And even late in the game, once you've become proficient with the controls, I can almost guarantee you will mess up. There have been other games that did swinging mechanics much better than this. 
this game isn't horrible. There, It's not a terrible swinging experience, but it can lead to some frustration. And part of that is just trying to uh, approximate the amount of distance between you and the hook to make sure that you're swinging at the right time. It just doesn't feel perfectly smooth to me. If it's not already obvious, you are going to have to devote a fair amount of time to the game to learn it and to learn all of the different levels and the enemies. This is not an easy experience, and part of that difficulty is tied to the limited continues that the game provides you with, with extra continues being tied into your ability to actually play the game well enough to succeed at the Andes Asteroids mini-levels. I do want to say that this was addressed in the Sega CD version with the level password system that the development team introduced, but the baseline Genesis version didn't have that luxury. That being said, most of the levels are fair, even if they don't always feel that way when you first encounter them. I'll give you a quick example. The first time I hit level 5, I thought the game really ramped up the difficulty unfairly, and I couldn't possibly see how the stage's boss could be defeated at all. Even getting past a couple of stationary shooting sections in that level felt designed to sap your hit points. It turns out, I just had to practice and learn the fights and the patterns, after which I was able to eventually beat the level without losing a single life. So this is one of those games where practice does in fact make perfect, but there is one level that I still dislike, regardless of how much I practiced it, and that was not a problem. And we already talked about that one. That's the one where you're on the bungee cord trying to knock the other enemy into the wall, and he's trying to knock you into the wall. That just that one level or the three stages of that one level, but really the third stage of that level was just brutal torture. And when I got past it, when I finally got past that level and I had enough lives and continues to actually be effective for the rest of the game, I was elated. It's just one of those levels that to me was not all that well designed. Otherwise, though, the game is a very playable experience with what is ultimately a well-designed and crafted world with nice enemies and really quality encounters. It's just that one level that really detracts from it a bit for me. So overall, how did it feel? My initial impression, like we were talking about, was pretty negative. And even going back to play the game for this episode of the podcast, I still had a negative impression out of the gate. I just thought the game was unnecessarily difficult and designed poorly. The thing is, I was entirely wrong. This is just a game that requires some investment to fully appreciate. Once you take the time to become proficient with the controls and the specific nuances of combat and the gotchas in each level, you'll find a refined, fun platforming experience with a unique sense of humor. That said, it is not without its flaws, and the snot-a-problem levels in particular Part 3 can be very frustrating. Aside from that, though, this is a game that you can learn, play, and enjoy, and even after beating it, you'll find that you want some more. So, where is Earthworm Jim? What is the overall verdict of Earthworm Jim? You know, Earthworm Jim really does stand as an outstanding first effort from Shiny Entertainment, and you can really tell that they wanted to create something special. I don't think it's for everyone, though, because there are some decidedly old-school design decisions that can cause frustration, some of which are addressed by the Sega CD version of the game. That said, the original Sega Genesis Earthworm Jim experience remains a solid golden oldie. It's not quite a flawless experience, but it is one you'll likely still enjoy, and for anyone who wants a dose of mostly well-designed platforming run-and-gun action, I highly recommend you give it a shot. was our episode on Earthworm Jim. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. 
If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, give advice, comments, feedback, suggestions for future episodes, or just talk about classic gaming or classic technology in general, I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you can reach out. You can either send me a note on Twitter, I have the handle at ClassicGamingT, I also have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com, so feel free to drop me a line, I'm really interested in hearing what you all think. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on American Laser Games. So rather than focus on a single game, we're going to focus on a company and then take a look at several of their titles when we do our pseudo review section. So I'm excited about that. American Laser Games was one of the predominant full motion video laser disc companies out there in the 90s. So, you know, I love full motion video games. I am looking forward to looking at that one. If anybody has any particularly fond or not so fond memories of any of the games by that company, feel free to write in. I definitely want to hear what you think. At the same time, I recognize this podcast pretty much lives anywhere the podcast lives. So if you wouldn't mind, or if you'd feel so inclined, it'd be great if you could leave me a review on your podcast service of choice. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about trying to harvest a ton of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is just making sure that I can create the best possible podcast that I can, and the only way to know that we're hitting the mark is by getting that feedback from all of our listeners. We are continuously growing. There are new listeners joining us every day, which is awesome. I want to make sure I'm making the best possible podcast for all of us. And to do that, I just need a little bit of info from you all. So if you feel so inclined, I would love it if you would leave a review. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on American Laser Games. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good if not better than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>